May let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning. Thank you for this Lord's Day, for this day of worship. We thank you, Lord, for those who are gathered here today to worship with us. We thank you, Lord, that the grace of Jesus Christ is with us and on us and resides with us. Lord, many of our lives and our fellowship are marked by works of faith, by labors of love and steadfastness of hope. Lord, by your grace, we are a holy people. We are beloved and chosen by you. And when the gospel comes to us, it came not only in word, but also in power. In the Holy Spirit and with conviction. Lord, not that we are sufficient in ourselves because in ourselves we are helpless and we are hopeless. We are impotent. Lord, we can't claim that anything came from us. But Lord, our sufficiency is from you. Lord, you are the only one who accomplished our salvation. You're the one who turned us from worldly things that we once idolized to serve you, the true and living God. Lord, you are the one who awakened us to receive your word. Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which performs its perfect work in all who believe. So, Lord, our salvation, the fact that we are saved, those of us in here who are, our salvation comes from you. You sent your son to die for our sake while we were still sworn enemies of righteousness. Lord, you graciously removed the scales from our eyes and, and drew us to faith in you. Lord, I ask you this morning to open our eyes that we may see more of your truth. Open our hearts to believe it more earnestly. And open our mouths to declare it more faithfully. Father, there's no greater time for us as the church to do that. But now, where the world is openly hostile to your truth, your word. Where man declares himself to be his own God, to proclaim his truth, my truth. Lord, the world is rejecting your truth. The world doesn't believe that you are the one true God. The world speaks out against what is righteous, what is true, what is holy. Lord, the world calls evil good and good evil. The world substitutes darkness for light and light for darkness. To the point, Lord, where those of us who believe in your word, who believe in you, we're, we're called hateful, we're called bigoted, we're called unloving, those of us who love your truth. But Father, I pray that we may be imitators of our Lord Jesus Christ, who boldly proclaimed your truth, who called men everywhere to repent, to turn away from their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be godly examples to one another. 
Help us to grow into full maturity in Christ-likeness. Lord, we know that the nourishment that we need comes only in your word. That we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. And Lord, may we therefore search the scriptures diligently and with singleness of heart. For Lord, in them we know that we have eternal life. Your word points us to Christ. Your word unveils the glory of Christ. Your word reflects your holy character. Lord, from your word, we learn of Christ's suffering, his death, his resurrection, his raising from the dead, his ascension to being seated on your right hand, his intercession for the saints, and his glorious return. Lord, by your word, you speak to us from heaven. Lord, this morning as we prepare to hear the preaching of your word, give us attentive hearts. Cause us to hear your truth with all humility and obedience. Open our eyes to see with clarity and open our ears that we may hear with understanding. Lord, may we take heed, give the earnest heed to everything that we hear with fear and trembling. Not only the instructions, but also the corrections. Not only the promises, Lord, but also the threats. And Lord, I pray for our brothers at our other churches, at Anniston Bible and Grace Fellowship and Redeemer and Christian Fellowship and Iron City Baptist and Mountain View and other like-minded men that we all proclaim the truth. And Lord, help our churches to continue to stand in the evil day. To be faithful to you, to be faithful to your word in the midst of a culture that is hostile to us. Lord, may our hearts, like the hearts of those on the road to Emmaus, burn within us as you teach us this morning from your word. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, for our visitors, we've been going through the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. This morning, we're in Matthew, the 20th chapter, verses 1 through 16. And we're looking at the parables of the workers in the vineyard. Well, the parables of the workers paid equally. There are different uh, names that have been attributed to this parable. But it is in Matthew, the 20th chapter, verses 1 through 16. And the parable takes place in a vineyard. So Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. It says here, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour 
and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went again. He went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the worker, the owner rather of the vineyard, said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with any of my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called but few chosen. I'm sure most people heard the last part of that last verse a lot. Many are called but few chosen. We hope to explain what that means as we go through this parable. So just some observations on this parable. We're going to define some, some terms that we see in here and, and give a historical background uh, to how wages were in uh, antiquity. They were antiquity. Think about the word antique in antique, old, ancient times. So first of all, in this parable, the vineyard. Okay, this parable takes place in a vineyard. We see that at the end of verse one. So a vineyard is the kingdom of heaven under the New Testament or from its first commencement. The householder or the landowner is God. The steward is Christ in his capacity as judge of the world. The laborers are, in the first place, the regular ministers of the kingdom of God and secondarily believers in general. The laborers hired first represent Jews. And the rest of the laborers are Gentiles and Gentiles are non-Jews. Okay, using biblical language. And salvation in Jesus made both uh, Jews and Gentiles equal. So understand some things about a typical Jewish uh, workday in antiquity. A typical Jewish workday was from uh, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. We have to understand uh, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have lighting like we do. They didn't have street lights and lights in their homes, and there was no Alabama power or anything like that. They didn't, they didn't have lighting. They, they worked 
basically as long as they had uh, sunlight. Okay. So they the work they went from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. in usually three hour increments. So they work usually three hours at a time. And that's why you see the master in his parable. He's hiring laborers throughout the day. So some laborers work three hours. Then he went to find some other ones that work three hours. Then some more to work three hours, you know, so forth and so on. Almost like shifts like what we have now. Now the workers hired at the 11th hour had to take work given to them meant that they were desperate for any work. The fact that they will only work for one hour. I mean, who would really do that, right? Because they had to wait all day to, to, to find work or for work to come to them. Now, the denarius represented in this parable was a day's wage for the common labor. Think about it as almost like a minimum wage. A denarius was the customary wage for a day's work. And according to uh, Jewish uh, oral law, a person needed a minimum of 200 denarii per year in order to exist. So that means they had, they had to work a minimum of 200 days out of a year, which is not real a lot if you think about it. And for those who didn't support a family, they were better off. Now, one denarius could buy 10 to 12 small flat loaves of bread. Three to four denarii could buy about 26 pounds of wheat, which could make about uh, 33 pounds of bread. Or three to four denarii could buy a lamb. 30 denarii, which is basically almost like a month's wage, uh, could buy a slave's garment. 100 denarii could buy you an ox. So in view of these practices, these laborers had a hard life. I mean, they basically just worked uh, it was hard for them to subsist. They, they didn't get wealthy because they basically made enough just to make it through each day. Like literally, they made enough just for a day. That's like a person just working eight hours a day and they could only spend what they made in that day. And the next day they had to work in order to, to buy more, to subsist more. They had to buy their own clothes and stuff like that and everything. So um, these laborers, these day laborers, they had a very hard job. So that just gives us a background to uh, the text and how work was back then. And we think we have it hard now, right? <laughs> These people, some of them didn't have a place to stay. They just, but there was, there was no such thing as homeless people back then. They just slept wherever they could if they didn't have a home. Now the laborers hired first in this parable felt that it was unfair that the workers were paid the same as they were. So the ones who were hired first thought it was unfair that the ones who were hired last was paid the same amount. But what they were doing was showing a lack of compassion and ungratefulness toward their fellow laborers and toward their master. And we'll see that as we go through this parable. Because the master let his prerogative be known to the complaining laborers. He was more generous than they realized because he didn't have to hire them at all. So he was showing how generous he was. Now we find the interpretation of this parable in Verse 16, the last will be first and the first last. Many are called and few are chosen. And we will look at that interpretation. So the big idea of this text is that God's standard of reward is different from human standards of payment. His standard is different. Work in the kingdom is not rewarded based on merit, but 
based on grace. And grace is a much greater reward than merit is. Merit is basically doing something to earn. But the reward of grace is greater than the reward of merit. And we will see that as we go through the passage. So let's look at our principles here. The first one is the unexpected generosity of the landowner. So we're looking at verses 1 through 7. So the text lays out that he went in the morning to hire laborers. And it says here. Verse 2, he had agreed with the laborers for how much? A denarius a day. They had to come to some type of negotiation or agreement. And he sent them out. And then he went the third hour, which was like 9 o'clock. Saw some idle and said to them, you go into the vineyard or whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Then he went out again at the sixth hour, which is around noon. And then the ninth hour, which was around three o'clock in the afternoon, and did likewise. And then the eleventh hour, he went out and, and uh, found others idle, not working, needing work, wanting work. And he asked them to come also. He says, why are you sitting here idle all day? And he said, because no one hired us. Well, I'm going to hire you. And so they went out into the vineyard. He says, whatever is right, you will receive. So why were the laborers hired throughout the day and not one at a time? That's probably a question that you may be asking yourself. Perhaps the landowner had many grapes that needed to be harvested. And after three hours, you know, with the first laborers, he saw that he needed more. Perhaps that was the case. The scripture doesn't really uh, tell us that. Uh, his vineyard was near a marketplace where many laborers uh, waited to find work. So. Uh, that the men kept coming and looking for workmen even toward the end of the day perhaps indicated that he wanted to complete his grape harvest in one day. So that's why he kept going back because those first laborers, and we don't know how many they were, could have been three, four, five, twenty. I mean, we don't know how large the vineyard was. Scripture doesn't say, so we're silent on that. But the point is perhaps the first ones didn't finish, so he needed to get more and then more. And perhaps he wanted to finish the whole harvest in one day because uh, those grapes could uh, spoil uh, real fast. So that's why he kept coming and looking uh, for laborers because grapes don't keep indefinitely. So they had to be harvested as soon as they ripened. So perhaps that was the urgency in going back and getting workers. Now, what I want us to note here is the generosity of the landowner. Now, the first laborers agreed to a denarius, as we saw, which is one day's uh, wage. And the laborers hired at the third, sixth, and ninth were given whatever is right. Now, whatever is right com um, concerning who? The landowner. It was up to him to give them whatever was right. Because the laborers at the 11th hour were given what? Whatever is right. So who determines that? The landowner. He determines himself what is right. Think about you when you have someone to come to your house and do some work. Although they may come with a negotiated price, you know, someone may come, uh, you know, we get our grass cut every two weeks because I, I don't have time to get it cut anymore. So the company that does it does it for a certain amount. But when they were going around knocking on people's doors, you know, trying to get business, I asked him, hey, man, how much you charge? And and he told me, I said, I said, that's too much. 
I said, you know, we got to we gotta walk that number down some. And uh, so since I'm the owner of the land, he's the business owner, but he's going to be the laborer. I had to get down to a price that I thought was what? That I thought was right. And it was up to him whether to, to do what? To take it or to leave it. It was up to him. But I gave him a price that I thought was right. And when that price was right, then we signed the contract. And, you know, his company is hired to do the landscaping on my on my yard. But I'm paying him what I think is right. I didn't like lowballing, but I paid him what I thought was right because I'm the landowner. I'm the one who owns the house and the land. And so that person can't dictate to me what they think I think is right. So in this sense right here, this landowner, it was up to him what he thought was right. And the landowner knew what was right to pay the laborers in his own estimation. And what does this tell us about God who represents the landowner, whose landowner is represented by in this passage? Number one, it tells us that God is a debtor to no man. Whatever God sees right to do, he does. That's why we see in verses 4 and 7 in this passage, the landowner says, whatever is right, I will give you. He is not accountable to man. God is not accountable to man, but man is accountable to God. We can't place demands on God and tell God what we think is right. Because who's God? He is. Who created the heavens and earth? He did. We created nothing. We can't create anything. We can make things, but we only make things from what God created. We can't create anything out of nothing. Only God did that. God created the heavens and earth ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. He's the creator God. He's the sovereign God. He is the one who made us. He's the one who formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and formed woman out of the rib of Adam. God is the one who did it. We, didn't, we did not create ourselves. So the one who did the creating is the one who tells the creation what to do, what boundaries need to be set in place, what guardrails need to be in your life, what commandments you are to obey. Why? Because he is the sovereign creator. So in that sense, knowing that God is not accountable to us, we are accountable to God. God owes man nothing. He owes us nothing. But we owe him everything. God is the sovereign. Psalm 115.3 says that the Lord is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. He doesn't have to get our approval. He doesn't have to form a committee to ask us whether we think uh, we like something that he does or not. Or that he allows in our life. No, God doesn't consult with any man because we are sinners we are fallen he's God whatever God gives is generous because it comes from him when we understand that we'll truly understand grace we'll truly understand that everything that we have comes from God everything Everything that we do, the abilities that God gives us comes from him. The, the talents and the gifts that we have to work, the jobs that we work come from God. Or else we could be a mush, we could be a vegetable. Laying up, being fed by intubation and being kept alive by a ventilator. Not having any 
of our mental faculties. But all of y'all in here look vibrant and good and smart and lovely. It is all because God did that for you. And God doesn't have to do that for any of us. We have to understand that about God. And that is, this is what this parable teaches us. No matter what amount, no matter how long we work to acquire it, it is from God's generosity. God owes man nothing. That should humble us. He owes us nothing. He gives because he's a generous God. God is generous in his love. He's generous with his grace. He's generous with his mercy. And he is generous with his compassion. Listen to what David says about the Lord in 1 Chronicles 29. This was after the offering was gathered for uh, the temple that David wasn't going to build, but Solomon's going to build. And this is David's praise to God. Listen to what David says here. This is 1 Chronicles 29, beginning at verse 10. It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness. Who does greatness belong to? It belongs to God, not to us. He says, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. You got a job? Guess who that paycheck comes from? It comes from the Lord. Yes, it may have your company's name on that check stub. But it comes from the Lord. Their company would not exist without God. He says, riches and honor come from you. He says, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Because who am I? I'm just a mere man. I'm, I'm just flesh. I'm just here today and gone tomorrow. When I die, people will be sad for a while, but then after a while, it'll be just a fading memory. The cemetery that I'm buried at may be plowed over and the highway may go through it. That does happen. Or a parking lot may be paved over it. That's the transient nature of man. We're here today. The Bible says that all flesh is as grass. It withers as the herb. Our lives are so fragile. Our lives are so fragile. That's why he says, who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you. And of your own, we have given you. In other words, we're giving back to God what is already his. When we give our offerings in church, we're giving back to God what already belongs to him. All things come from God that we give back to him. The gifts, the talents that we have and are to use for his glory belong to him. They are his gifts. He bestows them on us. He gives you the ability to work at a plant. He gives you the ability to work in a 
service station. He gives you the ability to work at a bank or wherever you work, no matter in school, to learn to have intellect. All of that comes from God. That's why we owe him everything. And he owes us nothing. Amen. He gives because he's generous, because he's gracious. This is the love of God. God is a generous God. He is a gracious God. He is a loving God. And he shows it by bestowing on us, giving us the ability to do things. So when this man in the parable says, whatever is right, I will give you. That is a picture of the generosity of God. Amen. So we have the generosity of the landowner. And then the next principle, we have the ungrateful response of the first laborers hired. So we see here in verses 8 through 12. So the evening had come and the owner of the vineyard said to the steward, the steward in this parable represents Christ. Call the laborers and give them their wages beginning with the last to the first. So the last ones hired got paid first. And when he came to those who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received a denarius. And when they had received it, they did what? They complained. They murmured. They grumbled is the Greek word. And what did they say? These last men have worked only an hour and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day so that was their complaint so after the steward gave the 11th hour laborers their wages the first laborers they were indignant they were beside themselves because they supposed that they would receive more but they received the denarius that they agreed to that we see back in verse 2 I want you to note the ungratefulness of the first laborers. After they received their pay, they complained. They didn't complain before or during the labor. They complained after they received their pay. It's like you go and you accept the job that pays $7.50 an hour. And then you get married and you look at your first paycheck. All right, this ain't enough. Well, you agreed to work for $7.50. Right? You can't get upset at the company. When you agree you need a job, you want to work, which is nothing wrong with that. God uh, calls us to work and not be lazy. You, you, you get the job because you need the money. Got bills to pay because bills don't stop, do they? They keep going. You work, you get your first paycheck, and you need to start complaining. Is that gratefulness or ingratitude? It is ingratitude. Now, we have to understand this. God observed his own rules according to the payment of wages. And we find this in Deuteronomy 24 and 15. And listen to what this scripture says. It says, each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it. For he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he crowd against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. So God was basically saying those who were hired servants, they had to get paid 
by the end of the day. And this is what this landowner did. Payment was always due immediately for the laborer. And what this points to for us as believers is that when we finish our labor for the kingdom in this present age, guess what? We're going to go immediately to Christ and receive the reward for our labor. And that is to be present with the Lord. That is what we as believers look forward to. We're going to receive, believer, we're going to receive a reward for our labor in the Lord here on this earth. The greatest reward we're going to receive is to be present with Christ. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5 and 8, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. That is the greatest reward that we are going to receive is to be present with the Lord. What greater reward than to be with our Savior? There's no greater reward than to be with him. So that is what we're going to receive. There is no reward on this earth that can match that. None at all. Now, the laborers did not come for their pay until they were called. As such, for believers, we must be patient with the Lord for our rest and for our reward. It reminds me of the scripture in uh, Galatians 6 where it says, Do not be weary in doing well. For in due season, you will reap if you do not lose heart. We will reap in due season. And no, this ain't one of those due season uh, <laughs> sermons that these prosperity preachers, like, this is your season. No, not that kind of due season. Okay, we don't know when our due season will be. It may be in this life, but ultimately it'll be in the life to come. But the point is, is that we must be patient with the Lord for our rest and our reward. He will call us soon enough in his own timing. There are a lot of older saints who are longing to be with the Lord. You know why? Because they know that this world is not it. That is where all of our hearts should be as believers. Man, yes, we want to enjoy this world. We want to enjoy this earth. We want to enjoy the, the things that God has, has blessed us with. We want to enjoy our family. We want to do things. We want to go on vacation and, you know, all those things. It is nothing wrong with that in and of itself. We want to enjoy those things. God gave us all things rich, richly to enjoy, as, as Paul told us in 1 Timothy 6. But ultimately, for believers, our soul groans for the eternal life that we will have with Christ. Our ultimate longing is to say, Come quickly, Lord. Our ultimate desire, our ultimate hope is to be with the Lord where we will behold him as he is. I always say it. For unsaved people, this earth is the best that it gets. But for the saint, for the Christian, this is the worst that it gets. It's better on the other side. As my old folks, you say, it's better across the Jordan. It's better across that river. It is much better. That is where our hope lies. So when we see this parable, we think about that pay that they received. 
that they were called when they were paid. We're going to receive the same call, but we have to be patient and wait. Amen. So the response of the first laborers demonstrates the attitude that the Jews had when the Gentiles were given that mission into the kingdom of heaven. That's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees were so upset at Christ. That's why Paul received so much resistance from the Jews when he took the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, because Jews would look down. I mean, Jews looked down upon Gentiles. Gentiles were pagans, and they were pagans. And so when Christ extended the kingdom invitation to non-Jews, the Jews were upset. So in this passage, again, those first labors represented the Jews when the Gentiles were given that mission. And we, we see this also echoed in the, uh, the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the, el- the, the elder brother was indignant. He was upset at how the father had received the younger brother. You know, he saw the younger son from afar and ran to him and hugged his neck and, 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 and told his servants to prepare a feast for him, slam, I mean, uh, slay the fattest calf and, and, and put the robe on him and, and had this feast for him, saying, my son who was lost now is found. And the older brother was jealous. The older brother represented the Jews. And he complained about the father's generosity to the younger brother. The laborers were indignant with the landowner because he made them equal with the 11th hour laborers. It says in verse 12, these last men worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who worked basically during the heat of the day. Like what is wrong with you? (laughs) That's basically what they were asking. They were insulted. Now, this is a good question to ask. It's something I wrestled with uh, before. Is the landowner unfair in doing this? We'll answer that question. But the landowner in this passage represents God. So we can ask this question. Is God unfair? Many in contemporary churches will see the landowner as unfair because they've been deceived by the broader culture as to what true justice look like because true justice says in, in our culture you know we believe in uh, equity which is not biblical that everybody deserves the same outcome that's what equity is everybody doesn't deserve the same outcome everybody doesn't even start the same way equity the concept of equity is unbiblical. So our minds have been poisoned by the culture to think that everybody deserves the same thing. Everybody deserves the same outcome. Everybody deserves to to have the the big house on the lake with the boat and a beach house, a condo in Gulf Shores or Orange Beach. Everybody deserves that. Everybody deserves to quote good life as people see it. The house that will look good in Better Homes and Gardens magazine. Everyone deserves that. That's what we believe in our fallen nature that everybody deserves the same thing. Everybody deserves the same outcome. 
but that will never be possible. It's not even good to attain to because it's not possible for everybody to end up the same way. You could take two kids, you could take twins, identical twins from the same family, same mom, same dad, growing up in the same household, and they'll have two different outcomes. That has been proven. Two kids, three kids, four kids, growing up in the same home, same parents, raised the same way, having the same opportunities, and guess what? They're going to have three, four, five different outcomes. That lets you know that equity is not biblical. It's not true. It doesn't work out logically. But we look at this parable and we say, oh, this man was unfair. Those people that worked at the end of the day shouldn't have got as much as the ones who, who, who saw it at the beginning. But when you do that, you're missing the point of the parable. The point of the parable is not about what the workers got paid. The point of the parable is the generosity of the landowner. We can often overlook the generosity and providence of God when we begin to accuse God of being unfair because a lot of people accuse God of being unfair because of, of how their life has ended up. You say, Lord, I did all the right things. I did this. I did that. Why is my life still like this? And what we are solidly doing is accusing God of being unfair. We're saying, Lord, I don't deserve this. This is not supposed to happen to me, says who? And this is hard for all of us. Who are we to say how life is going to end up? The same argument is made by women who kill their babies in the womb. They'll say, if I didn't kill my baby, I wouldn't have had the career that I've had. or I wouldn't have had the life that I had. How do you know that? That's one of the excuses that they use to murder their own children. If I didn't murder my child, I wouldn't have had this career. If I didn't murder my own baby, because that's what abortion is. If I didn't murder my own child, I wouldn't have had this wonderful career. I wouldn't have been able to go to college and, and do all those things. As if the baby just got in the way of everything. It's the same argument. So we don't know how different our life would have been if things went the way that we thought they should have gone. We honestly don't know because we're not God. We're not in control of our lives. We're not in control of the outcome of our lives. Now that doesn't mean that we go out here and just live recklessly, haphazardly, however we want to do whatever we want to know. We don't do that. We exercise good stewardship of what God has given us. But it shows us that God is ultimately in control of our lives and he superintends our lives however he desires. I tell you all, all the time, when I graduated from high school, I went to, you know, I, I enlisted in, in basic training my 11th grade year. I already knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to get away from Tuskegee, Alabama. I signed up to go to boot camp uh, June 6, 1989, which was four days after I graduated from high school. I ain't, even, I, I ain't even give myself a chance to just celebrate. I ain't even get my diploma. It, it came in the mail. You know, that's how we got them back then. I don't know how they do them now. I guess you go up to the school and get them. We got ours in the mail. My mom said, your diploma? I said, okay, I'm in boot camp now. You know, I, it, I, I was just ready to go. When I graduated from high school, I put in my last will of testament that I'm going to go 
stay in the Navy for 30 years and retire when I'm 47 and while y'all fools still working. That's what I said in my last will and testament. I wasn't a Christian at that time, so yeah. Okay? After two years, I was in college. My life didn't turn out as I planned it. But while I was in college, I met my lovely wife. Had I stayed in the military, I wouldn't have met Francia Haygood or Francia Jones at that time. I don't know who I would have met. I wasn't a Christian at that time. I didn't come to Christ until after I left the Navy. Who knows what my life would have been like had I stayed in there. I probably would never come to Christ, but I don't know that. That's the point I'm making. So when we're looking at what's fair and what's unfair, whose standard are we using? We're using man's standard. We're using what we think is right. God is always fair. God is always just. That's consistent with his character. Everything that God does is just. It is right. Because it is according to his standard of what is right. We're the ones who are in the wrong. Who makes the bad choices? We do. But even in making our bad choices, guess what? God is so gracious to us that though we may hit that guardrail, we don't go over and tumble down the hill. Amen. All of us have made some terrible choices in our life. But guess what? God has put those guardrails in place to keep us from totally messing up and making a wreck of our lives. Because he's just and because he's right. And he only does what is just and what is right. Whatever man's problem is, it is because of man. It's not because of God. And so these laborers here complaining, they're making the wrong complaint. Many times our lack of gratefulness stems from the belief that we deserve more, that we deserve better, that we are more deserving than others. And our culture promotes these ideas that you deserve more, you deserve better. You deserve more than others. Now, does that mean that does it mean that we don't strive for more? No. But we don't do it thinking that we deserve it, that it is somehow owed to us, that somehow God owes us this life. God owes me that big 4,000 square foot house. Where the mortgage is $1,700, $1,800 a month. Where the power bill is five, dollars $600 a month. God owes me that. Our culture tells us that what we, we, we deserve more. You deserve that big 86-inch TV they got sitting in the sounds when you walk in it. TV so big, people can watch TV from the street driving by your house. Hey, it's football season now. People got to buy those big TVs because college football season in earnest is going to kick off next Saturday when Alabama plays. That's when it starts, right, officially. <laughs> I'm not talking about junior high football with Auburn, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I kid, I kid. But anyway, 
You know, but, but that's what the world says. You deserve it. Why do you think they have it right there in front of? As soon as you walk in Sam's, I go there every Sunday. I know you got those giant 86-inch TVs sitting right there looking at you. Why? Because you deserve that. You deserve it. That's what the world tells us. You deserve that new car. Every three or four years, you got to get it's, it's got to be brand new. It's got to have zero miles on. It. You deserve that nine hundred dollar truck payment. That's what the world tells us, right? You know how expensive trucks are now. A brand new Silverado or GMC Denali is gonna cost you about eighty thousand dollars. That's the, the payment on that is more than the house payment. I learned one thing. I learned when I was working at the bank was was this. Of course, cars are depreciating assets. As soon as you buy it off the lot, it loses about 20% of its value. People put more money in our nation into de depreciating assets than into appreciating assets like real estate and, and homes. We put more money on things that depreciate, that go down in value. And then we brag about it and we show it off. That's just a little side note there. But... The lack of gratitude comes from the fact that you think you deserve more. That's why people are ungrateful about life because they think in their hearts, I deserve more. I deserve better. And that is the attitude of these laborers in this parable. Now what this parable does show us is that the Gentiles have as much of the privileges in the kingdom of God as the Jews have. That's what Christ was telling the readers and hearers of this parable. We must be careful not to think that we have less while others have more of God's grace and favor. Everyone gets the same grace and favor from God. They're not people who have more grace or more favor from God. Everyone has the same measure of God's grace dealt to them. Because when you think that way, it's going to lead to ingratitude. Lord, why do they get to do this and I don't? Lord, why, why are their children that way and, and, and my children this way? Why, why is their husband that way and, 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 and mine is this way? You're thinking, okay, they have more grace from God than, than you do. So what falters in your heart? Ingratitude and, and ungratefulness. And then you start shaking your fist at God as if it's his fault that that happens. Amen? And last principle we see here is the unmerited favor granted by the landowner. So we see this in verses 13 through 16. So look at what it says. But he, the landowner, answered one of them and says, friend. See, that's how he addresses them, friend. He didn't say, you stupid man. <laughs> he could have said that, right? Excuse me. He says here, friend. I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. Get out of here. No, that's not what he meant. I wish to give to the last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is it your, or rather, is your eye evil because I am good? First question, can God be accused of wrongdoing ever? 
Paul answers that question emphatically, no. He says this in Romans 3, 5, and 6. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust? Who inflicts wrath? Certainly not. No one can ever accuse God of wrongdoing. It is God's prerogative to do what he pleases. Again, that's Psalm 115 and 3. Whatever God does to us, whatever he does for us, whatever he withholds from us, he does no wrong. And it takes the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to reveal this truth in us in order to internalize it. We have to think biblically about it. Whatever God does to us, for us, or whatever he withholds from us, he does us no wrong. Matthew Henry said this about this part of the passage. He says, because he worked through the heat of the day, the first laborer felt the 11th hour laborer didn't deserve the same pay. He says, it is hard for those that do or suffer more than ordinary for God not to be elevated too much with the thought of it and to expect to merit by it. So he's saying that it is not hard for someone who suffered a lot for God to be envious of those who didn't suffer a lot for him. That's why we have to guard our hearts. The laborer complained, although he agreed to the work. We have to always keep that in mind. He didn't have grounds to complain. Now, though God is a debtor to no one, he will stand to his part of the agreement. God will fulfill his end. When he says that we, whoever believes in him, will have eternal life, guess what? God will fulfill the end of the bargain. But you have to what? Believe on Christ to receive that eternal life. He will reward those who diligently seek him. God fulfills his end of that covenant. He always does. God never reneges on his promises. Thinking about a marriage. A marriage is the same thing. It's a covenant agreement that the husband and wife make to each other. Think about a purchase that requires a contract to be signed. Most of y'all on your jobs, you have to sign some type of contract, right? Well, most jobs do. I think, I guess, I know mine, I had to. You have to sign a contract. Certain, certain terms of the contract that you have to fulfill, and if you don't, then that, guess what? You get 86, you get fired. When a man makes a solemn agreement and keeps his side of the bargain, there should be no thought of injustice. This man made a legal agreement with his workmen. They would work for a day, and he would pay them a denarius. That was what they did and what he did. Where is the injustice? The fact that he chose to be generous to other people 
gives these men no new rights. Their discontent was due to envy, not the overlooking of any of their rights. That's what Leon Morris said in his commentary on this. Those men agreed. They agreed to it. And guess what? You know, this when I was with uh, BBVA, um, when PNC bought BBVA, PNC raised the minimum wage uh, of, of, of bankers to $18 an hour, right? Now, that was for the only people who were making $15 an hour. They would go up to $18 an hour. Our tailors mainly made $15, and they got a bump to $18 an hour. Now, this is what happened. Those who made $20 an hour, $25, $30 an hour, they were complaining because they weren't getting a bump up like the ones who went from 15 to 18. But the raise wasn't for those who made more than that. It was for those who made less than that. And that was the right way for the bank to do it. But the others, well, I've been working with this copy for 30 years and I'm only at $20 an hour. They should bump me up to 23, you know, something like that. That's what people were saying, but no. That wasn't the terms in which the bank had set forth. We look at it from our eyes and see an injustice and think that somehow our rights were violated. And that's the same thing that these laborers did, but they were in the wrong. This landowner was very gracious to them just to have them working, period. Because guess what? They could have been standing at the market not working at all, not getting any work, not being able to take care of their families or buy the things that they, they needed. The laborer was evil in accusing the landowner of evil. And we are evil in accusing, uh, uh, in accusing God of doing evil. We're the evil ones, not God. Who are we? Can we give God counsel on what is fair or not? No. It is only by his standard that we see what is fair and what is right. So the bottom line is this. The landowner didn't have to hire those workers at all, as I said. He didn't. We can look at our jobs this way sometimes. Did our employ employers have to hire us? No. They didn't have to. It was a means of grace because this landowner went out and looked for laborers. They didn't choose to work for him. He chose them to be laborers in his vineyard. And such it is with us. We didn't choose God. God chose us. Jesus told his disciples this in John 15 and 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. The disciples didn't choose Christ. Christ chose them. We didn't choose God. God chose us. It is grace. It is all grace. That God gave us anything. All that we have. All that we don't have. Is from grace. The unmerited favor of God. Salvation. 
the health to be able to work and to go to school, the abilities and gifts and talents that we have, all of these come from grace. And what should be our response to the generosity of God? It should be gratitude. It should be gratefulness. We should be so thankful to God for his grace. The fact that you are able to rise up in the morning. Do you know how many people don't? How many people go to bed at night? It happened with my father. I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to talk about it. He died nine years ago, nine and a half years ago. I talked to my dad Monday evening, April 22nd. He had just had dialysis that day. Talked to him because I would call him every morning on my way to work. And I said, Dad, I'll talk to you in the morning. The morning of April 23rd, he was dead, just like that. Literally, the, the, the next day he died in his sleep. Six, five years young. Just like that. Many of us probably know people, hey, I, I just talked to them the other day. I just saw them. You know, you hear about people dying. I just saw them. I just talked to them or whatever. When you wake up every day, you should thank God. His mercies are renewed daily. You didn't do anything to deserve to live another day. I didn't do anything to deserve to live another day. There's nothing good about me that I'm so special that I deserve to live until I'm 120 years old. There's nothing in me that deserves that. So when I wake up, I say, Lord, thank you for blessing me to see another day. As my grandma used to say, I'd rather be looking down at the grass than up at his roots. <laughs> it's all grace. Everything that we have, everything that we don't have. God, we have to understand this. God sometimes withholds things from us for our good. We don't look at it like that, do we? Let's be honest. We know the sinful heart of man. If God gave us too much, we would think of him too little. We would worship him not at all. Because we'll say, I got my money, I got my things. And we'll find our security in those things that don't even matter and won't last. That's the, the deceitfulness of riches will choke us. God is so generous and we see this through this landowner. It's, it's the fact that guess what? The fact that he even hired them at all, they should have been grateful. And then he says here the last first and the first last. What does this mean? This illustrates the truth that not all who are first shall be last and many last shall be first. Think about the thief on the cross. He was converted on his deathbed and he will enjoy the same privileges of heaven as one who's been, who's been saved for 50 years. The cross, I'm sorry, the thief came to Christ on the cross in his last moments. 
He's going to receive the same blessing as someone who's walked with the Lord 30, 40, 50 years. Why? Because it's all grace. Matthew Henry said this, because God acts in grace and we so easily think in terms of merit, there will be many surprises for all of us in the end when God, God's will is seen in its final working out. Human rankings will avail nothing at that time. And there will be those we have made last who will be first. And of course, the reverse phenomenon will also take place. Many are called and few are chosen. What this means is many are called to God's vineyard, but few remain and have that same spirit of humility and submission to God which will allow them to be the partakers of the reward the chosen ones in this parable are the ones who didn't complain the ones who were chosen last they were the ones who were the true chosen why because they didn't complain they didn't show gratitude. amen so in conclusion I want to read this to y'all that I wrote God's act in grace, God rather acts in grace toward us all. There's a tendency in the human race to think of salvation in legal terms. There's no heresy as widespread as the one we can put simply as, if I live a good life, I will go to heaven when I die. What constitutes a good life? It is natural for us to think that we can earn our salvation. But the consistent teaching of scripture is that we are sinners. We all fall short of the standard we ought to have attained. And thus we have no claim on salvation. But as in this parable, the workers who came late had no claim on the full day's wage, though they got it. So sinners have no claim on salvation. Salvation is always a work of grace. God doesn't treat us on the basis of how man sees us. He treats us on the basis of his grace. And for that, we should all be truly grateful. Amen. Applications here. Recognize God's generosity. We, we, we talked about that a lot in this sermon this morning. Recognize how generous God has been to you and how generous God is. And what do you do when you recognize it? You respond with gratitude. Are you always ungrateful to God? Accusing him of wrongdoing? Accusing him of being unfair? You know that for yourself whether you do that. And as you respond with gratitude, you rejoice in his grace. Have you experienced his grace applied to your life? Yes, you have. The grace to be able to work, the grace to be able to be a parent, a husband, a wife, an employee, a retiree, a child. We respond and we rejoice in his grace. We thank the Lord for the grace that he has given us, that he has gifted us with.
when that direct deposit hits, you should thank the Lord for the grace of being able to work and to earn this money. For the grace of this company hiring me and taking a chance on me. For the grace of having the ability to be able to work. That's how we rejoice in his grace. We, we, we show gratitude. We show thankfulness. Because we know that we don't deserve it. That it is all of grace all the time. Amen. Let us pray as we close out. Father, we thank you for the grace that is shown in this parable. From the landowner, which is a picture of you and how generous you are to us. Lord, you're, you're such a gracious and generous and giving God. And Lord, we're so undeserving as, as sinners. Lord, first of all, I pray that you use this message to save the unsaved, to convict them of their sin, that they may turn to you and be saved. And be in that vineyard with other believers who've been walking with you for much longer than we have. Because, Lord, in the end, we will all receive the same reward from you and Lord I pray that you encourage the faithful who have been walking with you for a long time that they're going to receive that reward also and that they may be grateful and Lord just foster in all of us an attitude of gratitude to be grateful and to be thankful for your grace as it has been applied to our lives in all different ways as mothers, as fathers, as husbands, as wives, as parents, as, as children, as employees, as employers, as retirees, whatever space in life, whatever lot in life, Lord. Cultivating us a heart of gratitude towards your grace. In Christ's name I pray, amen.